Picasso's friend, a thief, a Nazi killer, a pornographic book dealer, a government minister, anti-colonialist, award-winning novelist, art theorist, discoverer of a lost ancient city, even the target of an assassination attempt. Can you believe this was the life of one person? An art theorist who lived a life so extraordinary it seemed too incredible to be true. His name was André Malraux, a French art theorist whose ideas have been mocked and overshadowed by his mythomaniac habits. Malraux had noticed that the ideas about art circulating the first half of the 20th century were in denial of the fact that art museums were rapidly being filled with objects that came from cultures where a concept of art did not exist and that the ideas of aesthetics inherited by the 18th century philosophers had not properly understood the relationship between art and time. For Malraux, art was the affirmation of the human adventure. Malraux was called existential before Sartre, absurd before Camus, structuralist before Lévi-Strauss. His indifference toward homely truths, however, was vanity inverted. The adventure of Malraux's own life affirmed through the myths he created about it. Just in the same way that his hero, Lawrence of Arabia, was a controversial figure, Malraux had equal part supporters as he did enemies. His enemies accused Malraux's legacy of being filled with acts of unethical behaviour. Negligence, ignorance and fraud, cried Gorges Dewey. A cultural patchwork of Spanglerian metaphorical bric-a-brac, cried Pierre Bourdieu. Hegelian monstrosities, cried Merleau-Ponty. Sophisticated double-talk, cried Ernest Gombrich. Revolutionary thinker or intellectual charlatan, in the first part of this two-part series, we will go through Malraux's life's adventure. In the second part, we will discuss his theories about art. You're listening to The Unknowing Art Podcast, the show that makes you unknow the art you thought you knew. My passion is art theory and philosophy, and this is my way of sharing it with you. If you like the show, give it a thumbs up. If you'd like to support the show, I would be honoured. Link in the description below. He was the most extraordinary man I ever knew. Did you know him well? I knew him. Well, nil nisi bonum. But did he really deserve a place in here? Uh, Mr. Bentley, you must know as much about Colonel Lawrence as anybody does. Yes, it was my privilege to know him and to make him known to the world. He was a poet, a scholar, and a mighty warrior. Thank you. He was also the most shameless exhibitionist since Barnum and Bailey. Having grown up with Tourette syndrome in the first decade of the 20th century, Malraux was a private person, shy, nervous, and full of tics. In his youth, Malraux would frequent archaeological exhibitions in Paris alongside his father. With the adventures of Lawrence of Arabia in mind, Malraux dropped out of high school early to study Sanskrit and Chinese languages at university. Despite claiming he completed this degree, paperwork shows that Malraux dropped out after the first year. 
His lonely childhood weekends were spent scavenging flea markets for rare books and then selling them to notable bookstores for a pretty penny. The young Melrose had built a thorough familiarity with the Parisian literary scene and soon enough picked up his first job working for Simon Cra, the book publisher who would go on to publish the original Surrealist Manifesto. Simon introduced Melrose to many notable figures of the Parisian avant-garde, whose seducing concoction of nonchalance and absolute conviction swept Melrose off his feet and plunged him into the vicissitudes of art, an interest which would last his lifetime. Barely 19 years of age, Malraux publishes an article on the origins of Cubist poetry. It is somewhat fitting then that Malraux's second job was a book editor for Daniel-Henri Kahnweiler, the renowned Paris art dealer responsible for bringing the Cubists to fame. Kahnweiler was among the first to exhibit works by Picasso and had even personally paid for Braque's first exhibition. Malraux helped Kahnweiler publish books that paired up-and-coming authors with up-and-coming artists, collaborating together to make illustrated texts. Malraux began to fancy himself as a novelist and even submitted his own text, which was illustrated by Max Jacobs. In his early 20s, Malraux marries the wealthy German writer Clara Goldschmidt. Malraux had wooed Clara by pretending to be the son of a wealthy banker and then later became her saviour on their way home from a ball when gunshots were fired trying to protect Clara from a group of thieves who were in the process of stealing her pearl necklace. Far from being wealthy, however, Malraux was in fact writing literary reviews and dealing pornographic books to make ends meet. The couple travelled to Cambodia, part of the French colony of Indochina, where French archaeologists are researching 10th century Khmer artefacts and bringing them back to those museums in France that Malraux loved to visit as a child. The French colonial office had approved Malraux's application to travel to Cambodia to research and locate the long-lost Khmer road that once connected Anchor to Laos. After all, Malraux had an academic background in Eastern art and languages. In Cambodia, Malraux and Clara met up with their friend Shevinson and travelled down the Mekong Delta toward the 10th century Hindu temple Bentai Shrai. With chisels and picks in hand, they walked out of the temple with four bas-relief sculptures. Malraux may have seen himself as following the footsteps of his hero, Lawrence of Arabia. However, the reality was that while speculating on the stock exchange, Malraux had lost his wife's fortune on a Mexican silver mine investment. The couple were now broke and in need of quick money. With the sculptures stashed in a trunk addressed to a chemical company, Malraux, Clara and Shevinson were preparing their ship to leave for New York, where collectors eagerly awaited their prized possessions. But before their ship left dock, the trio were arrested by the French authorities. It was okay, Malraux smugly thought. They had already devised a brilliant plan for this exact scenario. The plan was simple. Sacrifice Shevinson and blame everything on him. The court quickly learned that Malraux had no academic record, and despite his desperate attempt to prove his scholarly nature by reciting lines of Latin poetry in court, 
his involvement as the mastermind of this theft stood naked and irrefutable. In a last-ditch effort, Malraux reported to the press that it was all just a big misunderstanding, that he was not a thief at all, but was rather protecting these artefacts from the native Cambodians who had treated this temple with neglect. Malraux was sentenced to three years prison for theft. Shevinson received 18 months. Clara, on the other hand, though equally culpable, was ruled innocent, determined by the authorities to be a helpless wife, legally obliged to fulfil her conjugal responsibilities to her reckless husband, who had forced her to join this criminal expedition. Clara returned to Paris to campaign for Malraux's release. Clara wrote a petition which was signed by many notable figures, including the novelist Francois Mariac, the co-founder of the Surrealist movement André Breton, and the Nobel Prize-winning author André Guida. Malraux's sentence was reduced to one year, and he was placed under house arrest in Vietnam. There, he sees firsthand the injustices of the French colony and experiences ill-treatment by the French authorities. Somewhat of a political awakening, Malraux becomes compelled to fight the French colony, and from his house arrest, he helped manage a newsletter aimed at organising the Young Annam League, who would go on to become the Viet Minh, one of the main communist players in the Vietnam War. After his release, Malraux crossed the border to China, where he alleged that he was involved with the Kuomintang and their then allies the Chinese Communists in the Great Northern Expedition. Malraux had claimed on several occasions that he witnessed firsthand the Kuomintang and the Chinese Communists turn on each other in 1927, triggering the Chinese Civil War. Ten weeks after returning to Paris, Malraux set sail with Clara back to Indochina as devout anti-colonialists. Malraux founded Le Indochine, a newspaper supporting Vietnamese independence. He also wrote several of his most famous novels based on his experiences in the French colony. Though it was initially a hit, Le Indochine was slowly starved out by the French government. Lack of funds and a hotel bill left unpaid for several months pushed Malraux and Clara to return to Paris, where Malraux was now a hero among the Parisian intellectual left. It was later revealed, however, that Malraux never witnessed the Chinese Civil War because he never went to China until after 1930 and his attempts at organising the Young Annam League had very little impact and bore no relation to the Viet Minh. It was now 1930. Malraux was working as an artistic director for the famous publisher Gaston Gallimer. Gallimer wanted in on the lucrative business of selling artefacts from the East. Having heard of Malraux's exploits in Cambodia, Gallimer asked Malraux to travel to northwest India, near the border of Pakistan, to collect half Greek, half Buddhist sculptures and smuggle them back to Paris. Hesitant at the thought of smuggling again, Malraux was eventually persuaded to embark on this venture, not by enthusiasm, but by tragedy. That same year, Malraux's father took his own life, while grasping onto a book about the Hindu-Buddhist concept of the afterlife. 
Picking up a few sculptures for Galimere was a small price to pay for the reward of being able to make a pilgrimage to the spiritually rich India in the wake of his father's death to learn about the Hindu and Buddhist traditions that his father had believed so dearly. Soon enough, Malra and Clara travel to Taxila in Pakistan and search the surrounding regions. Archaeologists were dumbfounded and Gallimere ecstatic when news reached Paris that Malraux made an original discovery of 90 sculptural artefacts. On his return, Malraux and Gallimere made a fortune. His archaeological critics, however, found in the end redemption, as Clara later revealed in her memoirs that they were unable to discover any artefacts at all, and instead found a small sculpture studio where Malraux purchased 90 fake stone sculptures. It didn't matter, Malraux had already sold them all, and his reputation was already glowing. In 1933, Clara gave birth to their daughter Florence. However, their marriage began to break down. Clara had disdain for the conventional marriages of her time. She wanted husband and wife to treat each other as honest equals. Though their marriage was certainly unusual, Malraux never opened himself to Clara, who later wrote in her memoirs that during their marriage she never truly knew him. That same year, Malraux met the novelist Josette Clotis, and he leaves his young family to live with her. One year later, using the money he had made from his recent smuggling exploits, Malraux's eyes were set on making a second great archaeological achievement. With his fame now bolstered, Malraux embarked on a publicised expedition to Yemen to discover the lost capital city of the Queen of Sheba, as mentioned in the Old Testament. Upon his arrival in his private aeroplane, Saudi Arabia invaded Yemen, sparking a major war in the region. Though it did not dissuade him from his search, it made the region very dangerous. After a month of flying over deserts in a two-seater, and after making an emergency landing in Somaliland, Malraux and his pilot gloriously returned to Paris to announce that he had found the ruins of the lost ancient city atop a mountain in Yemen. Again, archaeologists refuted his findings, and we now know that it was in fact not the ancient city. As the growing threat of fascism loomed over Europe in the mid-1930s, many saw the Soviet Union as a necessary ally against Hitler if he ever were to invade. Malraux had often defended the Soviet Union, though he ignored the economic theory of Marxism. The Marxist ideals of fraternity were clearly glamorized in his novels, which were mostly about social uprisings in the East. It was said to be a choice between the butchers of Berlin or the libraries of Moscow, and like many intellectuals of the time, Malraux cast a blind eye to Stalin's dark side. Having recently won the esteemed Prix Prize for his novel, Man's Fate, in 1934, Malraux was invited to speak at the first Congress of Soviet writers. The main theme of the conference was the catchphrase, Writers are engineers of the soul.
председатель съезда Максим Горький, Алексей Толстой, Федор Гладков и Борис Пастернак, Мартин Андерсен Нексы, Эрнст Толлер, Одрей Малроу, Жан Ришар Блок. Партии и правительство дали писателю все, отняв у него только одно право писать плохо. Отлично сказано. Отлично. К этому следует прибавить, что партии и правительство отнимают у нас и право командовать друг другом, предоставляя право учить друг друга. During the conference, its host, Maxim Gorky, famously declared that socialist realism was the only acceptable art form for communists, which horrified Malraux. What Malraux did next would have certainly gotten him sent to the gulags if it were not for the fact that he was an international guest of honor. When it was Malraux's turn to speak, he completely belittled the idea of socialist realist art. Perhaps unaware of his utter treacherous blasphemy, Malraux then attempted to argue to a room full of devout Stalinists and Soviet authorities that the ideas of commanding creativity was wrong and that the fundamental logic behind these commands were flawed. To quote Malraux at this very conference, if writers were the engineers of the soul, do not forget that the highest function of an engineer is to invent. Art is not a submission, it is a conquest. Needless to say, Malraux was never invited back. But he did make it home alive. Two years later, in 1936, the Spanish Civil War erupted. It is often joked that while the Soviet Union sent weapons and Mexico sent money, all the French sent was a baguette. Well, Malraux was that baguette. He felt somewhat obliged to help the Popular Front fight against Franco's fascist revolution. After all, Malraux was the author of novels praising social solidarity and political action. Everything that he stood for in his novels was now happening in real life in his backyard. This was his moment to prove it. Malraux volunteered his fame and fortune, rallying a group of volunteer pilots and purchasing 30 run-down retired military aeroplanes. Malraux did not know how to fly a plane, and he had never participated in a war, but now the veteran novelist would experience the real deal. Though he mostly cheered from the sidelines, he was an excellent strategic commander. Malraux was wounded twice while defending Madrid, and his squadron gained legendary status for their efforts in the Battle of Medellin. Malraux left the war early to tour the United States to raise funds for the Spanish Republicans. In 1937, Malraux published the novel Man's Hope, based on his experiences in the Spanish Civil War, which was later turned into a film. When he returned to Paris, he had a visitor from India. One of Mahatma Gandhi's disciples, Jawaharlal Nehru, had travelled to Switzerland to visit his dying wife. On his way back, he stopped by Paris and was introduced to Malraux. A friendship between them blossomed, and their fate henceforth intertwined. Tune in to the next episode 
to hear the story of how Malraux was captured by the Nazis, befriends Charles de Gaulle, and becomes France's first ever Minister of Culture. <laughs>